It's Tuesday, August 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Microsoft has said it will move forward with plans to buy the U.S. operations of TikTok after a wild weekend in which President Trump said he might want to ban the social media app in the U.S. No price has been decided yet, but this would be a big move for Microsoft into the social media world and also help with some data and privacy issues that TikTok has had. Georgia Wells, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, we're moving at record speed to develop and approve a vaccine for the coronavirus. But after that comes the hard part, distributing the vaccine. The coordination, planning, and communication needed to pull this off will be so complex and it has many worried considering the poor response to the pandemic by the administration so far. Lena Sun, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for what could be the largest vaccination campaign ever undertaken. Finally, while diagnostic tests for COVID-19 are more widely available now, you have to be careful when paying with insurance and where you are getting them. One woman in Houston paid for her son's rapid response drive-through test with insurance, and it should have cost $175. But the freestanding emergency room tried to bill $2,479. Marshall Allen, healthcare reporter at ProPublica, joins us for how out-of-network COVID tests could cost you more than you think. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We're looking at TikTok. We may be banning TikTok. We may be doing some other things or a couple of options, but a lot of things are happening. So we'll see what happens. But we are looking at a lot of alternatives with respect to TikTok. Joining us now is Georgia Wells, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Georgia. Hey, thanks for having me. It was a pretty wild weekend for TikTok, TikTok users, Microsoft and President Trump. There was a lot of twists and turns as we heard that Microsoft was making a play to buy the U.S. operations of TikTok. The president has obviously said he wanted to ban it previously. I think he said it over the weekend again. And then, you know, obviously the millions of TikTok users kind of left in the in the lurch, you know, not knowing if one of their preferred social media apps would be banned in the United States or not. Georgia, tell us a little bit what happened over the weekend and what we can expect from Microsoft trying to buy TikTok. So TikTok had been searching for a buyer ever since Secretary of State Pompeo said in July that the U.S. would consider banning the app. And so our understanding was by Friday, kind of it looked like the talks between ByteDance, which is the owner of TikTok, and Microsoft were pretty far along. They were looking pretty good. And then Trump ventured kind of into the back of Air Force One to talk with reporters and said, oh, you know, it looks like we might ban TikTok. And so that clearly kind of sent in motion kind of just like some of the deal talk scrambling. And so different advisors were trying to get through to Trump and he appeared to be coming around. And by Sunday night, he and the CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, spoke by phone. And afterwards, Microsoft put up a post saying, yes, they were in touch with ByteDance and it was going well. To take things all the way through to today, then today, Trump said that the U.S. Treasury should get a slice of the deal if it goes through. So it appears that the talks might be back on the table. Have we ever seen a U.S. president get this involved in the acquisition of a company by an American company of another company? Have we ever seen something like this happen? I can't recall any situations that come close. Like, it's entirely possible there's some deal that I'm not thinking of, but this seems pretty unprecedented in my experience reporting. Tell us what's at stake for each entity. Microsoft stands to gain a lot from that. What's in it for TikTok as well? So for TikTok, Trump has said that if they cannot find a buyer by 
September 15th that they would face a ban in the U.S. That was the latest that happened today. And so clearly, like, September 15th is this kind of existential deadline for TikTok that they need to find a buyer before then. It's more than just a place to land because TikTok has had a challenging time kind of getting the credibility it needs in Washington to convince regulators and lawmakers that the data of users would be safe. And Microsoft, if you recall, they actually they run the cloud for the Defense Department. So they have that credibility that TikTok needs so desperately about kind of their ability to safeguard users' data. Also, for Microsoft, this gets them into the social media game in a way that they haven't really been a player previously. And so, like, on the one hand, like, they get the hottest social media app in in a long time. But on the other hand, there's a lot of headache that comes with the social media world. There's, like, content moderation and conspiracy theories, and there's all kinds of coordinated harassment that can come on social media apps. And so I think a question mark will be, like, how excited will Microsoft be to take on some of those challenges that are A, difficult, and B, the company doesn't have a ton of experience with. Obviously, for TikTok, they initially had all these problems with the privacy and all that. So with Microsoft, that's a great pairing there. And for the United States, for the Trump administration, they're positioning that as a win also. Obviously, it's a win because you're taking a Chinese app away from them and bringing it to the United States. And also, they don't have to worry about the privacy stuff anymore either the sharing of data with the Chinese government. hundred percent. Because I think it's important to like keep in mind the context here of there's this cold war, if you will, or tensions <laughs> right. between the U.S. and China, however you want to describe it. And TikTok has shown how easy it is for a company to become kind of a political chip in these kind of different tensions between countries. And so our understanding is certainly the Trump administration kind of wants a win earlier on there was one proposal we'd heard about that would involve kind of U.S. investors increasing their stakes in TikTok so as to make it majority owned by U.S. investors, which then in turn could sort of make it an American company. But that the problem with that was that even if that made it an American company, it wasn't viewed as this win. And so I don't quite know what constitutes a win, but you could imagine there's a little bit more at play than the like nitty gritty mechanicals of who owns what. And it's more of a broader statement. Georgia Wells, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Some of the vaccines may need to be stored at temperatures, you know, minus 80 degrees. So you might need special freezers or refrigerators. And the different vaccines may require different dosing. You might you might need two doses 14 days apart or two doses 28 days apart. Joining us now is Lena Sun, health reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Lena. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the coronavirus vaccine and when we finally get it, as it is, it's been moving at warp speed just for the development of it. We're in phase three trials for a number of candidates now. But once those get approved, then it's another hard part, an equally or even harder part is to distribute it to tens of millions of people. Immunizing the U.S. population could be the single largest vaccination campaign ever undertaken and has a lot of people worried. We've seen how the administration has handled a lot of the pandemic so far, the response to it, and it's been uneasy at best, let's say. And this immunization effort is going to take a ton of of coordination and planning and communication between the government and individual states. It's going to be really tough. 
So Lena, tell us a little bit about what it's going to look like to distribute all of these vaccines. As you mentioned, it is going to require a lot of coordination. And part of the confusion comes from the lack of information that has come out from the administration. President Trump and officials have repeatedly said that the military is going to be involved in the distribution, but they haven't given the specifics of how that's going to work. And the existing immunization infrastructure in this country is a network that pushes out millions of doses of routine childhood vaccinations every year. And it was used during the 2009 H1N1 swine flu pandemic. CDC runs that network with the states, and they basically scaled it up to push out influenza vaccine in that pandemic. This time around, it's not exactly clear whether they're going to rely solely on the CDC system, whether they're going to create a new system, or whether it's going to be some kind of hybrid. At a briefing last week, the Health and Human Services Department, which is the lead agency for the pandemic response, told us that it was going to be a hybrid and that DOD was going to do everything related to the logistics, getting the vaccine to the right places at the right times in the right conditions. Remember, we're talking about multiple vaccine candidates. Some of the vaccines may need to be stored at temperatures, you know, minus 80 degrees. So you might need special freezers or refrigerators. And the different vaccines may require different dosing. You might you might need two doses 14 days apart or two doses 28 days apart. And you need to make sure that whoever is getting the vaccine is getting the right dose from the right manufacturer. And if they have to come back for a second dose, that they're getting the right one. So it's very complicated logistically. And you need to know how it's going to be distributed to get pushed out. There was a meeting last week where CDC told the groups involved in immunization that the model is going to be one based very similar on what was used in 2009. And in that case, there was a central distributor. States would have to prioritize and approve the request for vaccine, and then the central distributor would push out the vaccine. But it's not been very clear at all. And the people most closely involved in this effort have been trying to glean information in bits and pieces from telephone calls and webinars. And really, they say, you just need to put it out and be transparent so everybody knows how this is going to work. And then there comes about people's distrust of vaccines already as related to this. You know, seven in 10 Americans say they would get a vaccine to protect against COVID-19, but there's one in seven Americans say they wouldn't because they distrust vaccines in general. You also have to factor in communities of color that aren't always trusting of uh, government entities and how they roll things out. And they're the ones that are most at risk. So there's just a lot of questions. And you're mentioning how groups are starting to plan ahead. The National Association of Governors said you need to start planning now for how this is all going to be rolled out. Nobody wants to get caught flat footed on this. It sounds like it's like far, far away. Right. But the problem is you don't know when you're going to have those first limited doses. 
you know, might be tens of millions of doses, even though pharmaceutical companies have been offering these very rosy predictions of how much they're going to be able to churn out. And you need to plan now. But if you don't have the specifics, as some of the state officials were telling me, then you sort of have to double plan, right? If the state is going to be involved in distribution and play a bigger role, do they need to go lease warehouse space? Do they need to go rent freezers and refrigerators? Or if they're going to rely on the traditional way of doing things, okay. But if you don't know, you sort of have to plan for both scenarios. And guess what? We are still in the middle of a really serious pandemic surging everywhere. And it's the same people who have to deal with the outbreak and deal with the coronavirus pandemic and also all the other public health things. There's not like a whole separate team waiting around just to do this. Lena Sun, health reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The patient's not going to pay anything out of pocket. And in those cases, the insurance plan is going to pay reasonable rates. But with out-of-network providers, and that just means a lab or a doctor or a clinic that doesn't have a contract with your insurance company, they can charge almost any amount that they want, and the insurance companies have to pay it. Joining us now is Marshall Allen, healthcare reporter at ProPublica. Thanks for joining us, Marshall. Thanks for having me here. I wanted to talk about this aspect of coronavirus testing. I've always been very interested in how much does it cost? Because while states and the government have said, hey, nobody should have to pay for a coronavirus test, that's not always true. Sometimes you go to a doctor's office. In the case of the story we're talking about today, you go to more like emergency room services, and those aren't covered for free all the time. Your insurance can pay for some of it, and it gets pretty weedy. But man, this story that you wrote about how a $175 COVID-19 test led to $2,479 in charges. It's just crazy, the things that they were trying to charge for this. So Marshall, tell us a little bit about this story and how they got to such high charges. I think one of the big lessons in American healthcare is that nothing is ever free. And so even though Congress has passed some laws that protect patients from spending a lot out of pocket, our insurance plans can still get charged some exorbitant prices for these COVID tests. And I wouldn't call it the norm. I mean, most of the time, if people go to an in-network facility or an in-network lab or an in-network doctor, then their insurance plan has a negotiated rate for that COVID test. And so the patient's not going to pay anything out of pocket. And in those cases, the insurance plan is going to pay reasonable rates. But with out-of-network providers, and that just means a lab or a doctor or a clinic that doesn't have a contract with your insurance company, they can charge almost any amount that they want, and the insurance companies have to pay it. So what they are doing, some of these out-of-network providers, in this case, I wrote about one of these freestanding emergency rooms in Texas. They charge exorbitant, extremely high charges, at least according to the experts that I talked to. So in this case, they charged $2,479 for the test. And then that becomes the negotiating price to get reimbursed from the plan. So they may not get $2,479. In fact, they probably won't, but they'll probably get a lot more than if you would pay out of pocket. So in this case, if you paid out of pocket, they would have taken $175. But once they get access to your insurance, they're going to go for the $2,479. Now, this facility in particular is called Signature Care, as you mentioned, in Texas. 
And you profiled a woman named Rachel Cordova. She went to get a test. She also had to get a test for her son. And that's really where they got the itemized account for this big charge. But right off the bat for her own test that she didn't end up getting because she didn't want to go through all of this. In the fine print, it says all the different things they can charge you. The facility fee can be anything between $500 to $100,000. Observation fee could range from $1,000 to $100,000. So it's just like such an open-ended spectrum of money they can charge. Well, and it really is ridiculous. I mean, you know, if you go someplace and they hand you paperwork and they say, we may charge your insurance plan up to $100,000 for a facility fee or for an observation fee, that's going to cause people to think twice before they sign that paperwork. And Rachel de Cordova is an attorney in Houston. And so she reads the fine print. So when she got handed this disclosure statement, you know, she had just gone there for a drive-through COVID test right. that was advertised for $175. She gets handed this paperwork and she sees these potential fees charged to her insurance company. And she said, well, hey, look, I don't want to run it through insurance because I don't know what this is going to cost my health plan. I'll just pay for it out of pocket. And she offered them her credit card and they actually said, no, they wouldn't let her pay out of pocket. They said they were afraid it might be insurance fraud, which it's not insurance fraud, just to be clear. But that's what they told her. And so she ended up leaving without getting the results of her test. She had already done the test. But they didn't give her the results. And that's also a public health hazard. You know, if they let people leave a testing site without telling them whether they tested positive or negative, that's really not a best practice. Let's drill down into her son's examination, her son's test, because they ended up going back. I don't know why they went back to the same place. <laughs> well, they didn't actually go back. So what happened is it's really interesting. She was so disturbed by this paperwork that she got and these potential six-figure fees that she wondered how much it would cost. And then she and her husband realized they had taken their son to that same facility about a month before. Oh, I And so back in June, they took their son there. He's an eight-year-old boy. And they had him do a test and they had submitted it to their insurance company, but they had never seen a bill. They had never seen a statement. So they were able to look up their own insurance records and they were able to get his records from the freestanding emergency room. And what that revealed to them is that their plan had been charged $2,479 for that visit. Yeah, in that case, the facility fee was over 1700 bucks. The physician's fee was $486. And there was mistakes in there. They said that he had gotten an antibody test and that there was other types of exposure from COVID-19 that they weren't even sure he really was subjected to. So, I mean, it really did seem like they were marking anything they could to up the price. So I ran this by a lot of experts and they pointed out, first of all, there's a few things in healthcare in the United States that people need to keep in mind. And that's the first one is that the price is never the price. You know, just because they say they're going to charge $2,479, that doesn't mean they're going to get that. And it doesn't mean that you should pay that. Although sometimes they might get paid that, which is why they jack these prices up just in case they can get paid that much. But also the billing is incredibly sloppy. I mean, I've looked at lots of medical records for lots of different patients. It's very common to have errors in the bills or to have things where it looks like they have upcoded the bill. And by upcoding, I just mean they have billed a higher level of coding, which means they can charge and get reimbursed for a higher amount of money than what would be warranted. Like I ran this bill by some experts and they said that for this type of care, it did not warrant the type of billing code and the type of charge that the family received. Marshall Allen, healthcare reporter at ProPublica. 
Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.